Let's pray real quick before we dive into the Word and ask God to help us with what we're going to see today. Heavenly Father, you are a gracious God. You are the Lord of hosts. Like that song says, Psalm 46. You bend the bow, you break the spear, you tell the wars to cease, and they listen to you. And now we ask that you'd come and pour out your Spirit on the Holy Scriptures and give me uh, wisdom and, and, and keep my mouth from error as I proclaim the glories that are here, Father. And I just pray that your grace would come, open my heart to receive the realities we're about to look at. And I pray that you do the same for, for each person here and each person who's going to be watching tomorrow on Sunday. We ask that your name would be honored and magnified in us seeing the glory of Jesus Christ in John 5. In the name of Jesus, amen. So uh, for the past uh, few weeks, uh, we've been in a series that we've been calling uh, The Son Shows the Father. It's a series that's really looked at this event that happens in John 5 where Jesus is confronted with enemies and he has to uh, engage some glorious realities about his relationship to his father. And so if you have your Bibles, and I, I hope that you do, or you get a, a uh, mobile phone or smart device you can put up on that, um, turn to John 5, starting with verse 30. And while you do that, let me set the table for you about what's going on in John 5. So uh, Jesus, at the beginning of John 5, he heals a man on the Sabbath who has been paralyzed for 38 years, which is amazing. But what's more amazing than that is some people have a problem with it. Uh, The Jewish leaders take issue with him healing a man after four decades of paralysis because he, he did it on the Sabbath. This isn't new for Jesus. Uh, Jesus heals people on the Sabbath all the time. Um, But after this specific instance, when uh, they begin persecuting him, Jesus says to them, he turns to them, he says, my father is working until now, and I am working. And so he's saying, God is my personal father. And according to verse 18, their response to this in John 5 is they want him dead. They see this as a, a claim to deity from Jesus. He, he, by claiming to be God's son, he is claiming to be equal with God. He's, he's claiming to be of the same essence. Like our, our kids are of the same substance. They're of the same essence for us. They are equal in terms of their value as, as human beings, as their parents. And so they hear Jesus say this, and they see it as a claim to deity. And Jesus spends all of John 5 saying, you're right. You're 100% right. I am equal to God. And he does it a variety of different ways. This chapter is really a sermon from Jesus of him engaging uh, really how he, God the Son, relates to God the Father. And he says a few things. I'm just going to touch upon them briefly, and then we'll get into the the meat of what we're looking at today, starting with verse 30. The first thing he does here in in John 5 in this sermon is he, he says that he does whatever the Father does. The Father does it. He does it. Everything that God does, including the healings that he is doing on the Sabbath, are a product of God's own purpose and plan. Jesus heals on the Sabbath because God is about healing people on the Sabbath. There is nothing, Jesus says in this text, that God the Father does that the Son doesn't do likewise. 
which isn't something a mere human could ever say. So he's affirming their, their accusation that he's claiming to be equal with God. Secondly, he, he says that the Father has given him all judgment. The Father has given the Son all judgment, which we saw means that not only that Christ is, is at the apex and reigning over the, the entire universe, but also that everything about our future eternally hangs on Jesus. How we view and receive Jesus determines how we view and receive God. God's purpose is that we would honor the Son just as we honor the Father. And that's explicitly what Jesus says, which would be impossible to do if Jesus wasn't divine, if he wasn't God the Son. We are judged on how we receive Christ, and this judgment manifests itself. We looked at at this the second or third week in this this series as whether or not we receive Christ with faith. If we receive Christ with faith, the, the judgment is that we have eternal life, and if we receive or if we reject Christ, we receive eternal judgment. And last week we saw from Ephesians 2 that this life that Jesus is talking about here, that, uh, that we, we receive isn't just a light switch in our hearts that if we ask Jesus into our hearts, he comes in, he turns on the switch, and all of a sudden we're alive. That's not the way that it works according to Ephesians 2. God makes us alive. He raises us from death to life. And it is from that free gift of life that we receive, believe, and enjoy Christ for all eternity. That's what this is. John 5.21 says it best. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The life that we see in John 5 is a divine prerogative. It is a divine work, a divine act of God through Jesus. And so now we're here in verse 30. We're about halfway through this sermon that Jesus is preaching, and he begins this second half, this last part here, with a a comprehensive statement in verse 30 that kind of draws together all these different threads that, that I just mentioned. He says in verse 30 this, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear... I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If you remember verse 19, that sounds an awful lot like verse 19, where Jesus says that he can do nothing of his own accord, only what he sees the Father doing. The thing that's different about this verse here is that he gives a reason for that. He tells us why he only does what the Father is doing. He says, as he hears, he judges, and his judgment is just because he seeks the will of the Father. Not his own will, not his own immediate desire or inclination. He seeks the will of the Father. And we just really have to think about what this means. Um, Because it's, it's, it's interesting to think about Christ as the Son of God, not simply in his human form, having fleshly desires that he actually averts from. He says here that his judgment is just because he's not trying to gratify his human flesh. He's not appealing to his immediate needs. He is completely and totally committed to the will of his Father. He is dominated by the will of God, which means, think about this, Every inclination, every impulse in his being is in perfect alignment with and submission to God. That is an awesome thing. 
That doesn't mean that he was never tempted. That doesn't mean that he never felt weakness. We know that he felt all of that, according to Hebrews. And earlier in the Gospels, we see that he was tempted by Satan. Yet he never submitted to it, not once. He was always in perfect lockstep with the Father. And if you're anything like me, (laughs) sinful and broken, this right here is probably the most compelling evidence for Christ's divinity. That this could happen is amazing. Because I don't feel like in my own life, and I don't know how you, you are, but like that's not, it's hard for me to be in lockstep with God some days. But he was here. And so he says his judgment is just. He is in perfect agreement with his father. But in verse 31, Jesus shifts gears dramatically from the, the, the sermon that he's speaking. He goes in a different direction. He moves to engage something that his opponents are thinking. And that's really the subject matter of this second part of the sermon. Uh, the, the, the objection that they have to him is never stated. I don't think he gives them room to actually mention it here. But the objection is obvious. What would someone say if Jesus was saying all of these things about him and God the Father here? They would say, what gives you the right to claim that? What gives you the right to say that God is your Father? Are we just going to trust every single random, backwoods, Galilean rabbi that comes into Jerusalem claiming to be God the Son? What gives you the right to say that? Jesus knows that they're thinking these things, and he cuts them off at the pass. Later on, we're going to see in John 8, uh, verse 13, this same thing comes up. Pharisees come to him and say, you're bearing witness about yourself, therefore your testimony cannot be true. And that's actually fair. That's a fair question because in Jewish law, um, God had appointed a means by which testimonies could be measured. They could be weighed. Statements by anybody could be determined whether they were true or not based on whether or not there were more witnesses for it. Deuteronomy 19.15 says this, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrongdoing in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. We see this in Jesus' trial. They needed multiple witnesses in order to, <clears throat> to condemn him. And Jesus here is one man. He's one witness, and he's making a claim that is so remarkable, so astonishing, that the law itself, God's own law, demands multiple witnesses. And so Jesus knows this is rising up in their hearts. He knows that they want to say these things in the middle of his sermon, and he engages it head on. Verse 31, look at this. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. So he's affirming Deuteronomy 19. He's saying my testimony would not be true if it's just me. There is, he says, another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. So Jesus is saying that there's another witness who is bearing a testimony, bearing a witness about who he is. He knows the testimony of this other witness is true. Whoever this other witness is, he hasn't revealed yet who it is. He knows it's true. And so the question really, as we go into the second half of this, this sermon is that Jesus is preaching is, who is this other witness? Like, who is this person you're talking about that you know what he has to say is true? And Jesus is going to unpack this throughout the remainder of this chapter. 
<clears throat> today we're going to focus on who that is. And then ne- next week we're going to talk about why it is so incredibly important. Um, and it will help us understand why they are rejecting Jesus. So, so listen to what he says here, starting with verse 33, where he's going to first engage something uh, that we think is, is relevant, but actually it's a diversion. Um, John 5, 33. You sent to John, Jesus says, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He, John, was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So Jesus, again, just said, there's another witness. I know his testimony is true. And then he says this, they sent to John. Now, this isn't the author of the book of John, um, as you may know already. Uh, This is John the Baptist. Last year, we spent a lot of time with John the Baptist, both in John 3 and in John 1. And then there was a period that we were in the Benedictus, which is John's uh, a, a, a prophecy about John in, in the beginning of the book of Luke. And we spent a lot of time with John in 2020. Uh, in fact, our last service in John Muir Elementary, almost a year to this day, was the introduction to John the Baptist in this book, which I found interesting. Jesus says they came to John. Now, if you remember John 1.19, there were people that were sent to John, religious leaders sent to John in John 1.19, and they inquired, are you the Messiah? Are you the Savior? Are the Christ? Uh, are you the one to come? And this reality about John has really been a, an ongoing theme in the book of John. In fact, in the very first few verses of the book of, of John, Uh, We see in verse 6, the author say this, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. That's John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, that's Jesus, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So John the Baptist, this burning, shining lamp, according to Jesus, isn't the true light. He is shining a light. He, he, he's bearing witness to the true light, and he's sent by God. And what Jesus is saying is, this is why John the Baptist existed. This is why John the Baptist came. He was to bear a testimony of me. Jesus, or God, uh, John was sent by God to bear witness to Jesus. I mean, and when when he first sees Jesus in John 1, I don't know if you remember what he said, but he looks at Jesus and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is John's life. John's life was for that moment, in any moment where he was pointing to Jesus. That's why he existed. He was called to testify to the Christ. And Jesus is saying here, John the Baptist faithfully bore witness to the truth. The question the reader, the question the people who were there have in, the mo- in this moment is, is this the witness that you're talking about, John the Baptist? Is that the one that you're talking about, the other witness in John uh, 5.31, that his testimony is true? And the answer to that question is no. <clears throat> this is not the witness that Jesus is talking about. Because Jesus says here in verse 34, not that the testimony that I receive is from man. I say these things to you that you may be saved. 
In other words, John's not the witness I'm talking about. John was a witness, and you rejoiced in his light for a while. But that light's gone now. Most people believe that, that John the Baptist was either in prison at this time or he was dead. He was beheaded by Herod. <clears throat> and we see that in uh, the other Gospels. Um, but Jesus' point here was that, that when John the Baptist was preaching and pointing to Jesus, you received him, by and large the Jewish people received him with joy. But Jesus is saying, John was only here to point to me. He was only here to point to me. And if you really did believe John, if you really did believe him, you would be saved. You would receive me. You would believe in me. And you would have eternal life. But they don't. And so Jesus shifts now from John the Baptist to another witness. He says in verse 36, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me, that the Father has sent me. So Jesus is saying that his own personal testimony isn't just what he's saying with his mouth, it's the works he does, namely healing people. These physical miracles, works that his Father has given him to accomplish. And he says these works bear witness to who I really am. They show that God the Father sent me into the world. And he's saying that, listen, if you rejoiced in John's light, the very one who came to bear witness about me, um, why are you now rejecting me when I'm showing you that I'm really who John said I was? And, and we see here in Jesus' response that the main reason that Jesus heals people isn't to restore their physical health, even though, praise God, it does that. The main reason that Jesus heals people here, the most critical reason, is that he heals people's souls because he shows them who he is. He is it is a sign. It is a, a visual picture that he is the one that God has sent. It is a testimony to him being Christ, the Son of God. And therefore, his healings aren't just a physical healing that's going to help somebody live for another 30 or 40 or 50 years, he is interested in their souls forever. There is eternal significance in his healing. He is opening their eyes to see his glory. And so Jesus' witness here is greater than the witness of John. John was a lamp. Jesus is the true light that God sent into the world. But even this is not the witness that Jesus is talking about. So he's moved from John the Baptist to the signs that he's doing. He's laying out a case for who he is, and now he's going to go to the witness that he's been talking about the entire time. Look at verse 37. He says, The Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard. His form, you've never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So here's the other witness, his father. 
God himself is the other witness. Think about this. To preemptively answer a charge that hasn't even been vocalized yet, but he knows it's going on in their hearts, that he is bearing witness about himself, and therefore he's violating Deuteronomy 19. To preemptively answer that charge and head it off at the pass, Jesus brings another witness to the table, namely the creator of the universe. He says that in addition to John the Baptist, in addition to the signs that I'm doing, my dad bears witness about me, God himself. This is more than a prophet that is pointing to Jesus, saying that's the Lamb of God. This is more than mere signs like healing a boy who is at the verge of death. You remember that at the beginning of the series in the end of John 4? Or this man who was paralyzed for almost four decades. This is a greater witness than all of those things times 10 trillion. This witness is God. And Jesus is talking about the witness that God has given in his scriptures. He's talking about the Bible. You ever wondered what Jesus thinks about the scriptures? This is a great indicator. He thinks it's God's voice, God's word. He says that you've never heard God's voice audibly. You've never seen his form. And I assume that that in a room like this, that's true about everybody here. Maybe not, (laughs) but... um, I I feel like he's saying that because that is what our experience is. We don't see God. We don't hear God's voice. But this third thing that he says here is pivotal. He says, you don't believe me because you do not have his word abiding in you. He's telling them God's word isn't in you. It's not living in you. It's not abiding in you. So when I show up, when the only son from the father shows up and you can see him face to face, You don't know who I am. You don't recognize me. He makes this very clear in verse 39 when he says that they search the scriptures. They search the Old Testament books because they believe in in those pages, in those words on manuscripts that they have eternal life. But, But what they don't see in the scriptures is that the scriptures point to Jesus. That's the purpose of the scriptures. The 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 scriptures are God's own witness, his own testimony throughout the history of his people, that he was going to send his son, that his son was going to enter into the world to save this world from its own self-destructive rebellion and the judgment do it for that rebellion. Scripture is God's witness, and that's what Jesus is pointing to here, which is profound, and it's what I want to really spend the rest of our time with today as we uh, look at this text, and then God willing, next week, one more sermon in this series before we start Uh, engaging Easter. Um, And I really just want to understand this statement. He says, they, the scriptures, the Bible, God's own word, it is they that bear witness about me, about Jesus, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So think about that. There is a way that we can read the Bible, the very words of the living God, in vain. which is a scary thought. It is a scary thought. Um, I've been referring to these uh, opponents of Jesus in John 5 as Jewish leaders. Uh, We don't know for a fact that they're leaders. They may not have all been leaders, which is why he doesn't use that language. John uses the uh, iota yos word, which is uh, Jews in Greek, but in this gospel and in the others, it seems to indicate that these are the religious leaders of the day. 
It's a title that's been given to the people who are sort of always on the other end of the argument with Jesus. And um, even like John 8, 13, which I mentioned earlier, uh, it says, So the Pharisees, the religious leaders, <coughs> said to Jesus, You are bearing witness about yourself, and your testimony is not true. This is the same thing that happens in chapter 5. When we get to chapter 8, six months, a year, I don't know, whenever that happens, God willing, uh, we'll see it again. It will resurface again. Um, and so, so the reason I point this out is these are the Pharisees. Uh, you guys know the Pharisees. The Pharisees are like the experts in the scriptures. They know their Bible backwards and front. Paul tells us in Acts 26, and he was a Pharisee, um, he tells us that they are the strictest sect of the Jews. Nobody exceeds them. They know the Bible. They know the Bible's words better than you and I do. Many, many of them had memorized large portions of the Torah. And yet when Jesus shows up, the very one that God has sent, they look into his face, they see his signs, they, see, they hear the words coming out of his mouth, and they reject him. They don't see him as God the Son, which tells us, again, there is a way that we can read the Bible and not see Jesus. There's a way that we can, we can know the Bible in deep, thorough ways and yet be unchanged by the realities that are in it. And that is a terrifying thought. A good kind of fear for a Christian to have that we see Jesus when we go to the Word. Because the only way, Jesus says in this text, the only way that we can have eternal life is if we actually do come to Him in the text is if, if we see him and receive him in the text. There is no life outside of Jesus. There is none, absolutely none. There's only death and condemnation. And so Jesus, when he says, you, you refuse to come to me that you may have life, he's recognizing that that is an eternal refusal. There'll be a point in time when they won't be able to say, I'm sorry, and turn back around. It's a refusal, it is a rejection, it is a denial of the very one the scriptures have been pointing to for literally thousands of years. He is the only source of eternal life, and yet they throw him to the side. They want him dead, which is why later on in this chapter, at the very end, Jesus is going to end this entire conversation with a haunting statement that must have both shocked his hearers and simultaneously infuriated them. Listen to what he says here in verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Let me just tell you, if there was anybody listening to him right now who was on the fence about killing Jesus, that ended with this statement. He effectively, effectively ended any indecision about them wanting his, him dead. He just told them that on the last day, Moses, the one who they cherished, the one who they loved, the one who they've hoped in, the writer of the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, Moses is gonna be the one who's gonna accuse you. And the reason why is because they actually don't believe Moses. 
When Moses wrote those words, they don't believe him because they don't believe in Jesus. He is calling them unbelievers. Think about this. This is a brutal indictment because these are the elite religious leaders of that day. And yet they treat scripture in a way that shows that they don't really believe in them. <laughs> so when um, the one that the scriptures points to finally shows up, not only do they fail to recognize that that's the one, that's the one we've been waiting for, but they hate him and they will do anything to silence him. And I, I wonder, when I was reading this, I wonder if they if any of the people who heard him in this moment, if Deuteronomy 18 entered into their minds, let me read this text to you. God says to Moses in Deuteronomy 18, I will raise up for them, for Israel, for my people, for the Jewish people, God's people. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself, this is God talking, will require it of him. And Jesus is saying, Moses was writing about me in that text. I'm the prophet of Deuteronomy 18. I'm the one who God has sent and commanded and given me words to speak. I'm the one coming in the name of the Father. Moses wrote of me. So here's the question. Like what happened here for our own walk with God? Like for our own pursuit of the glory of Christ in our lives? How is it possible to spend so much time in the scriptures and miss the very point of the scriptures in the first place? Namely Jesus. Like how does that happen to, for anybody? Um, and part of this answer we're going to see next week. And so I would commend next week if you're able to make it, please, uh, probably the most critical aspect of this entire series. Um, but as we close today, I want to focus really on verse 38. And I just want us to feel the gravity in our own lives about what Jesus is saying about the religious leaders right here. Are there ways that, that we can treat the Bible that do not lead to life? Or is there a way that, that people can treat the scriptures that only lead to condemnation on the last day. Is, there, is that possible? And I think the answer Jesus is saying here is that yes. I mean, if the Pharisees who spent their entire lives in the Bible could miss the central reality of the book, then anyone could if they don't come to receive Jesus. That's the point of this exchange. It's not a clever story that was recorded uh, for historical significance. This story was written down for our edification, for our admonishment, and so, what can you and I learn from this moment? Well, the first thing we should learn from this moment is that we must be creatures of the Word. We must be creatures of the Word. It is not sufficient to be a casual Bible reader. It's not sufficient to just read it when it's convenient or when I'm at church. The Scriptures were meant for us to press into them as though they were an ocean of glory every single day. Bible reading is not an obligation on like a reading plan, even though reading plans are fine. It's not just an intellectual exercise or an academic exercise. The scriptures exist 
This book exists so that we can meet with God. The living God. On his terms, in his words, for his glory. And so I I don't want you to see the, the Pharisees and say, well, Jeremy... What good is Bible reading anyways? I mean, these guys read the, the Bible. They, they read it all the time, and it didn't do them any good, so why should I? Jesus is clear here. Their error isn't that they read too much of the Bible. That's not their problem. Their error was that they didn't see and embrace the glory that was there. They came to the Bible like it was an academic exercise, and they didn't see Jesus and Jesus is, says to them, you, you do not have my Father's words abiding in you. He could tell that from how they were engaging him, which means that they did not come to the scriptures humbly with hearts that are open to hear God's word. They came with their own agenda. They came to commend themselves. They came to, to read something on a page and feel good about themselves after they had read it rather than to encounter the creator that those pages point to. That's a problem. They treasured religious activity and not the God that that activity must bring us to. The Bible um, is not the end. I love this book. It is not the end. It is an instrument. It is a means for me to meet the one who wrote it. Um, and it's not, like a, <laughs> it's not like a box and a checklist of things to do in a day. I know it can feel like that sometimes. It's not a religious exercise. The Bible is our means, our means of grace for knowing our maker and therefore knowing Jesus Christ. This is the point that Jesus is making here. In the scriptures, we encounter God's story of redemption. We come face to face with not only how he's redeeming his people in this world, but the very one through whom he will redeem them. That's what happens in this book. We see Jesus. Let me give you an example. The same Moses who wrote about the prophet in Deuteronomy 18 wrote this passage in Exodus 12. It'll sound familiar. Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord, Yahweh, will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come into the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he's passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And Moses tells us here, the people bowed their heads and worshiped. And they worshiped Jesus even though they didn't realize it fully. Because he is the ultimate Passover lamb. This is, in this passage, this is God's redemption of his, of his people, the people of Israel, from their enemy, Egypt, 
enslaved for 400 years, and it came only at the death of a, a sacrificial lamb, a Passover lamb. It only came because they sacrificed this lamb, used it to, to paint the lintel and the doorpost. And then think about this, a thousand years later, more than a thousand years later, maybe 1400, John the Baptist will see Jesus by the Sea of Galilee and he'll look at him and say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John believed what Moses wrote in Exodus 12. He believed him. John had God's word abiding in him, and he eagerly awaited the coming Savior that Exodus 12 promised, who would defeat a far greater enemy than Egypt. The kingdom of Egypt is nothing compared to sin and eternal destruction. And that's what happened when John saw Jesus. And Jesus will do what Exodus 12 tells us happened to the Passover lamb on the cross. So when we come to the scriptures with humility and with open hearts, we will find the glory of Christ everywhere. We will find his beauty and pointers to him all over this book. It is the cross and in the provision of God's son as a sufficient sacrifice for our sins that we actually can see into the heart of God. And see his unwavering love for us. Despite all the reasons we give him for it not to happen, he pursues us with his love. And in his word, in the glory of the cross, which we're going to see more next week, the way that it works, so powerful, we see the cost he paid to win his people. And we, in that moment, in seeing that, embrace him as our treasure. In that moment, his word penetrates the deep recesses of our soul and takes residence in us, abides in us. The glory of God puts down roots in our hearts and says, I'm not going anywhere. And in that moment, we believe in him, we delight in him, we receive him, we treasure him, and this is why the cross is so significant to Christianity. It's the center of human history. It's the center of this book. Everything is pointing towards or flowing from the cross of Christ. And for those who have been gripped by this, for those who have God's word abiding in them, it is the center of our lives. And so in the next few moments, we're going to sing, as we always do. Um, and if your faith is in Christ, I want to invite you to participate in, in communion, the Lord's Supper, if you're uh, able to and you feel comfortable with it. There's single serve communion cups out on the table if you don't have one now. Um, the Lord's Supper is the culmination of the Passover in Exodus 12. It is the reverberation and the echo of John the Baptist saying, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what, that's what the Lord's Supper is. It's our celebration where we see the Lamb of God most clearly in the cross of Christ. And so I ask that as you partake in the elements today, <clears throat> the bread and the cup, and you, I ask that they, as you come to them, I ask that you would consider the significance of God's word with the cross as its centerpiece. And that as you go through this week, endeavor this week and every week following to not do what the Jewish leaders did. 
but to come to the scriptures with a soul hungry to meet with Jesus. A soul insatiably hungry to see him. I'm being real with you. He is present in the words of this book. His purposes, his plans, his thoughts. There is literally nothing we could read that is more worthy of our attention, our time, our affections, our devotions than the word of God. And so may we be creatures of the word. May we saturate our souls in the oceans of God's glory in this book. And I, I can promise you this, if you come, if you come to this book with an open heart and humility, you will be met with a loving Savior in Jesus. He will come to you there in the words. I don't care where it is in the book, he will be there with you. And so let's do this. Let's not make the mistake of the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders. Let's be creatures of the word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for John 5. I mean, there's so many facets that we've already explored in the past few weeks, and just us staring into the immense chasm of your splendor and glory. I pray that uh, you would give us hearts, Father God, that are hungry for your word. I pray that we'd be discontented with superficial academic treatments of scripture that only seek to cross off a things to do list and, and doesn't seek to meet with the creator of the universe. Grant us, Father, strength and wisdom to, whether it's rising early or staying up late or finding time in our lunch breaks or whatever it looks like, no matter where we are, for us to, to press into the glory of the cross in the scriptures, to, to look at the scriptures recognizing that everything is flowing to Jesus and everything's flowing from Jesus and it's for me, from my God and Father, and that I can be with him here in his words that his words can take up residence in me. May that reality be true for us, for every single one of us, no matter the age, no matter where we are in our walk with God, Father. Ignite that fire in the name of Jesus. Amen.